So welcome back to Fish's Call Sheet. Today is a special one as we start talking about what goes into a set and all of the things that, that really make up a home in our case. We have a special treat. If you're a Roseanne fan, the assistant art director and original set decorator, who is now currently our assistant art director on the Connors, Jerry Dunn is joining us. Welcome, Jerry. Michael, thanks for having me. I appreciate you bringing me aboard to chat a little bit. I love it. You have history and knowledge that I, you know, that I get asked all the time. So today is going to be a real learning experience for me as well. Totally. Happy to answer whatever I can. And yeah, it's, it'll be fun to share for sure. Let's just start with um, an art director, assistant art director. What does that title mean? And what do people outside the business think you do? Okay. Really what I am is I'm a production designer. I've been doing my own shows for 20 years or something like that. I happened into the Connors because a good friend of mine is designing it and he was looking for some help on the show. And since I had such an attachment to the show from the very beginning when I did the pilot, but 99% of the time I do my own shows as a production designer. So in this case, when I work for John Schaffner, who's the production designer, I'm his assistant. You know, we'll read a script or talk to Bruce and the boys and get a rough idea about the show, what the requirements are for a swing set or something like that. Sometimes we have words to work from. A lot of times we don't. A lot of times we don't get a script. We just get a little two-minute conversation with Bruce and the boys. And they say, well, you know, Jerry, we want to go to a parking lot. And there's a car and people are going to talk. And so then we'll just kind of like have to like take off from there. I did um, anger management with Bruce and Dave for 100 episodes, the Charlie Sheen Project. And so then we were doing two episodes a week. So you can imagine we never had, you know, we never had scripts. It was all done kind of like with three minute conversations here and there and just sort of like get down to it. So the good thing is, is I have a lot of experience with these guys, whether we're doing sets that are either new builds or whether we're doing swing sets, which are just, you know, as you well know, are just throwaways, right? It's just a week's episode, something, and then it goes away. I always tell people there's three kind of sets in sitcoms. There's the basic sets. There's what I call recurring swing sets, and then there's just swing sets. So the recurring swing sets are like your bedroom, or Darlene's bedroom, or the kids' room, or the garage, which you'd call recurring, which means they come back several times through a season. And then other times we'll do like the Mexican bridge that we just did, and that's just a one-off, and you kind of just sort of crank it out and you know get to the essence of it. There's a lot of it is you know the scale and the size is all depending on you know, how many pages and how much room do we have and what's going on in the scene. So it's my job to take everything that we have on stage, but then fit all this other stuff in and get it designed. You know, I have to get it drafted. I have to get it built. I have to choose the colors and all that kind of thing. And so I do that in accordance with John and John's a busy guy. And so I turn around and kind of like run with the whole thing once he and I kind of dial in where we're going. Being a production designer, right, is really like being an art director and interior designer all in one for television shows. That's the best way I can tell people. I'm like, they said, what do you do? And I said, well, if you go to a restaurant, I design a restaurant. If you're going to a parking lot, I do parking lots. So it really just is based on what the scripts need. But that's kind of what I do. It's like combination of architecture and interior design, but yet knowing how to, you have to shoot it with four cameras. So you kind of got to figure out, you know, you got to know your angles and you got to know where they need to play and how to block it you know, where people need to stand and whatnot, and then there's a design around that. 
Yeah, and I think it's important that people realize you have to have a concept of what the space is on the set because we only have so much space in a sound stage. And if we already have the majority of the, of the main areas taken up, you know, the home stays there permanently. That's our, that's our standard set. But right. if you have the garage one week and then we have maybe, you know, Casita Bonita and then they ask you to bring in some other swing set, maybe it's an office or, you know, another business, you got to figure out a way to design it and build it and make sure that that all fits in there, but it has to fit around our regulars. Right. Exactly. And it's the logistics of, right? Like when they write, seven things in you're like okay well we're going to shoot that on thursday and then we're going to rip that out and then we're going to move that over there and then we're going to you know so it's all those kind of things all sort of you know i mean we have a great team of people behind us our construction coordinator dan puccio that you know yes. my parent our head scenic painter and kelly our foreman i've been with these guys now for several years so we have kind of a second language now kind of like you working with the cast right because you know yeah. You, know, you know their idiosyncrasies and how they're doing and how to deal with them in different situations and whatnot. Going back to the original show, you were there in the very beginning and right. really set that tone for what the world knows is the Connors home. Yes, totally. That was, a, I got to say, that was so much fun. I was working for a guy named Garvin Eddy at the time, who was the original production designer. In the beginning, you know, I got to work with Matt Williams, who was there, right, from the very, who really created the show. And so when I worked with Matt, the cool thing was, is that Matt's, I want to say it was his aunt, Michael, okay. who he went to visit. She lives in Indiana or someplace like that. And so when we talked about doing the show, Garvin called me, say, hey, I got this pilot. It's called Roseanne. She's a stand-up. You know, do you want to jump in on the project? And I said, sure. You know, I wasn't working at the time. And I was like, sure, let's do it. So when we met with Matt, Matt came back. This is, this is old school, right? He came back with a stack of photographs that was, you know, I don't know. Michael. He had a couple hundred photographs. And it was so funny because it was this tiny little house, just like the Roseanne house. And we copied a lot of detailing out of the architecture and whatnot out of Matt's aunt's house. So we had, you know, and sometimes you get no information from producers. But in this case, Matt was so, you know, Matt's a super guy and a super intelligent guy and very detail oriented the smallest detail he he can spot fixate on and and ramp up right he's just you know super intelligent guy right that you just go oh, wow how do you and that's the way he was with so he knew from the very beginning before we even drew anything he knew where he wanted it to go and what he wanted it to look like and the feel of it and garvin was from oh he'll get mad at me i think he was from indiana and I was born in a small town. I was raised in a small town in Western Pennsylvania of 14,000 people. So there's no doubt that I could understand who she was and who the family was. You know what I mean? I grew up in that part of the world as opposed to somebody who grew up in Los Angeles and would right. try to design that and might not have the same, you know, I mean, I know your dad's construction buddies. Our house has this beautiful... Um home feel to so many people over the years you guys have done such a beautiful job in my experience fans have come to me and said i know somebody just like that or i had something like that in my home and when you say that i mean that's the truth is people feel like it and i don't know that somebody who was say born out in la or born in new york who just was drawing it or designing it could have put all the little touches that made it feel like home for people 
we had so much fun. He was running back and from New York at the time, Garvin was. And I would go out shopping and I would, you know, those are days I'd shop Polaroids and I'd go out and shoot Polaroids and bring stuff back, right? But people laugh all the time. It's like, well, where did you get all that nice furniture and everything? And I said, oh, you have no idea. I mean, we went every place shopping for that show because you couldn't go to a store. You know what I mean? You couldn't go get that look in one place. It was from, you know, the antique malls on Sherman Way. And it was the Goodwill store in North Hollywood. And the, I think the couch and the chair and the fireplace, we couldn't find a fireplace. You'll laugh. We couldn't find a fireplace for like two weeks. And so I was flipping through the Sears catalog. And that's where I bought that. Originally, that fireplace we bought from Sears. <laughs> and we brought the thing in and it was so goofy looking, but we knew that it was perfect for the house. Right. And if you notice, there's a light switch on the fireplace. Yes. That was my idea. Because it was so awful looking. I thought, oh, God, this is too funny. There's got to be a joke sometime or other where somebody walks by the fireplace and flips the switch, right? And turns the thing on. I used to play with it as a kid. I don't know, 28, 29, something like that when I did it. But you were a kid, man. You were you were like a little boy. I remember like everybody was so little, right? Tara and, you know, the whole bunch of them. Yeah, it was that was a fun time for sure. But it was great. Like when we did it, right? It was like, you know, we found the Godzilla. Uh, where they right, and we didn't try to. You know, people say what style, and I said what style. <laughs> it's not. There's not a style. I don't know that you call that a style. You know, and the thing that was so cool about it that I loved is that if you remember, like in the '80s, television was all heightened reality. Very Everybody much. lived in houses that were bigger than they could afford and prettier and everything. Well, when we did Roseanne, we got down to it. You know, and it was like these people didn't have any money. And so the opportunity to create that on television was so much fun because it was different. It was, and I think that's why people love the show so much. Yeah, it wasn't, you know, you go to a, to a store and you shop, what's the latest couch or what's a trendy set, right? And right. so many sets kind of fit that they become reminiscent of their time period. You know, this is an 80s show and look at all the 80s furniture and the 80s decorations and look at a 90s show and all the 90s stuff. Eclectic would be a nice word. They are, you know, a mix of the, it's the hodgepodge of reality. And I think that's, those are the homes that most of us grew up in. Totally. Right. And when you look at the house, you know, when we did the house, that carpet, I remember that carpet from like neighbors of mine had that sculpted carpet. Right. We tried to buy that. It was a bitch in the beginning because you could, they didn't, nobody had it. And right. we're like, oh, well, we want to use this carpet. I remember a carpet guy looking at me going, you want that? You know? And so before it was retro, right? Then it was just dated and old shit. People <laughs> yeah. Yeah, then it was stuff nobody wanted. And they're asking you why you're looking for that. <laughs> totally. And I'm sure we paid a lot of money for that at the time, just because we had to get it from, you know, we probably shipped it from, but the whole to talk you out of it. Right. I'm sure there was lots of things you went to buy. People tried to upsell you or talk you into something better. Or people would look at you, you know, and go, you want that? (laughs) And you'd be like, yep, that's exactly what I want. You know, and you'd find yourself laughing at it going, Oh, well that doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. Really the truth of the matter doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Right. And a lot of the shops that we went to were up in the North Hollywood area, like that Sears that's up there on Laurel Canyon. What was at the time a fancy furniture store on Victory, kind of across from that Sears, 
where people would go and be like, oh, look at that, you know? <laughs> and we were buying stuff and we would laugh at each other. We go, oh, well, that's just perfect. You know, we were like running around. But I must say we shopped a lot for that ship. You know, surprisingly, we spent a lot of time in the beginnings getting that house done. If you were now, you'd go to like the dollar store to buy a bunch of stuff for that house, right? But right. at the time, we were in thrift shops. We were in Goodwill stores. You know, we were in Wurtz Brothers. I want to say the most expensive piece of furniture that I remember that we bought was the hutch upstage under the painting against the wall. Yeah. That was a craftsman. The original piece was a craftsman piece of furniture. And we bought it. Garvin and I looked at it, and we were kind of running out of time. We had to, like, a couple of things we had to, like, get. You know what I mean? We just had to pick. And he said to me, he goes, what do you think about this? And I said, Garvin, that's too nice. <laughs> we can't put a piece of craftsman furniture in this house, you know? But we both knew that we were going to put a bunch of crap all over it. And we knew that the couch and the afghan would eat up most of it so you wouldn't really see it. I think that was from the Sherman Way Antique Mall, like out in Tarzana and Sino area out there. We're talking about late 80s. When you start talking about like vintage or thrift stores or things like that, they weren't on every corner like a lot of things are now. Amen. There weren't those places. I mean, there were some that were around that were cool, like Wurtz Brothers is a used furniture store, and they have a huge one in Santa Monica now, and it's the only one left. But it was a family-owned business, and they had one on Western over in Hollywood. But we would wander around, and we would find stuff, and we'd be like, oh, yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's a piece for the Connors. <laughs> you know? Like things like that one lampshade, you know, that one goofy lampshade that sits by the front door in that house. That's the ugliest thing in the world. And I'm sure now you can sell that for hundreds of dollars <laughs> on fleet market. But then it was like some piece of crap that some goodies grandmother probably died. We probably paid five bucks for the thing and went, oh, we got a gold find, right? You know, we were like finding treasures as we went around. Talk to me about the Afghan. It's got a life of its own. People are making them in their homes. Um, I see people send me recreations of it all the time. That was a piece, you know, what we were trying to do was we, when we found the plaid couch, we were trying to find something, to be honest with you, that was grandma made, but kind of like pretty horrendous in the way that it played against the couch, right? You can't help but look at the couch and look at the Afghan and go, oh my God, what's <laughs> that, you know? So we were looking for a long time and that was one of those things that was a little tricky to find. And I think, you know, it was a long time ago, Michael, right? So I, some of this I'm like kind of, eh. but I think it was the guy who ran Holly, who was the manager at Hollywood Studio Gallery, now Ralph Fowler. And Ralph was a, a flea market, a big flea market guy. And I think one time we told him, you know, said, hey, man, because he, when he was going out on Sundays, we said, if you find something, you know, can you turn around? And he brought a bunch of them in. And then I've heard stories because I only did the pilot. You know, I have heard more stories about where all this shit came from. And I like look at people and I go, I did it. I don't, you know, I'm not like reinventing the wheel here. You know what I mean? It was like, I knew where 95% of the stuff came from. And that like the light switches, you know, those horrible light switches all over the place. They were from, you know, Builders Emporium, which has been out of business for God knows how long now, right? A long time. Yeah. But they weren't from any like nice designer light switch place. They were probably 50 cents a piece, plastic, things like that that we had, you know, that we found. I'll tell you an interesting piece, you know, in the, um, in the kitchen, I have, I've been designing my own shows for a long time, right? And I had several people come in when I was looking for decorators 
who had worked on the show and told me they were the decorators on Roseanne and not paying attention to the fact that I did it. Right. So would come in and show me the living room and I'd be looking at him going, well, this isn't your work. This is my work, you know? Right. <laughs> so I would ask him a trick question. So when you go through, when you're standing in the kitchen, right. to the left of the arch, there's a little piece of cruel work, right? It's about like as big as a postcard. And it says, bless this house. Yep. And it's bright blues and I can't remember the color of the house. That's my great aunt's. She made that for me and sent it to me in LA because she was afraid that I was living in California and got hit <laughs> and you know, and she was trying to like keep my Catholic thing going on with me and everything. And she made that for me. And so I brought that in and I gave that to the show. But it was just one of those pieces, one of those stories. Like you couldn't buy that anywhere, you know what I mean? Right. You'd have to like search high and low for that thing. And my great aunt gave me that. And when I put it on the set, she was ecstatic. She was so honored to have it and everything, you know. But it was just one of those little things. You know, those tin plates that are around the arch in the kitchen? Yeah. Remember, I got those in the Salvation Army. And I think those are like a nickel a piece, you know. I got like <laughs> five of them. It's like, and I'm sure Ann, who's doing the show now, hates me. Because she had to go, you know, make all that stuff up and refine all that stuff. Right. I'm sure she spent way more time recreating that thing than I did doing it the first time with carbon. Like there's a few things from the original that aren't there because people had taken them home with them. Things like um, the dogs playing pool, the dogs playing poker. You know, the kitchen has this combination of eclectic, strange combined, you know, the tin plates that, you know, a little bit of needlepoint, the little thing next to the phone where we used to put stuff. <laughs> right. When Garvin and I were, I remember when I found the dogs and I, I said to him, I said, well, we got to have the dogs. Yeah. And Garvin's looking at me and, and we would get to a point, we would laugh at each other and go, are we going too far? <laughs> Is that shit too goofy? Are we going, oh my God, what are we trying to create here? You know, when it was all said together and put together, you know, it, it was very successful. And I think that's what I liked about it was that it was real. Right. You believe that somebody lived in that house. There wasn't anything heightened reality about it for sure <laughs> well i laugh you know the wall color that kind of avocado green right that was so common you'd never seen that on a television show like that you've never seen that kind of really authentic i grew up in a house that was that color right you know we didn't you know that was a big deal you know that color the other thing too that was really that i love that garvin did and we don't shoot it as much on the connors but the kitchen was really meant to shoot on an angle. Yes. Not square in. Because when you take that camera to the camera right side, you can shoot to the front door. Right. Well, in sitcom design in the late 80s, people weren't doing depth. They weren't doing, you know, they didn't care about extra rooms like they do now where it's so single camera looking, you know. So that was really, and the directors for a long time were like going, we're fighting it. Because when you shoot the kitchen square, it looks too damn big. Right? It looks bigger than the living room if you shoot it square. But when you shoot it to that angle, that's how you get the hallway into the bedroom. And you can see to the front door and you can see out the windows to the front door. So when he designed that, that was pretty revolutionary, actually, when it was done. And it's so funny to watch people like fight with it. Just go with it. It's just I think it's brilliant, Jerry. I, I have always been struck by the simple brilliance of that set that really was different than television before it and has been different than a lot of stuff after it. You can do something on our set that you touched on is 
have people standing in the kitchen and you can shoot through the kitchen all the way through and see the, the living room area and the front door. So you can have the reaction of the people in the kitchen who don't want to see whoever came to the door or are dreading whoever can't just came in the house, which is a really human thing and a very family thing. And it provides you an opportunity to play things that a lot of sets and a lot of shows never did or never could. And it wasn't complicated. And we always knew like we are like the raised platform in the kitchen, you know, when we put that up that six or seven inches, it was kind of like for her to have a bit of a stage. You know what I mean? So she could come charging in the kitchen and all of a sudden she's standing on that platform. Right. She's eating the room up. You know, right. she's got you all are the audience and Roseanne's like doing her thing. And so it was all those little subtle things, I think, that made it so good that looked so simple. You know, the stair, the handrail that goes upstage up to the upstairs of the house. Yeah. Well, you could see where the railing, how the railing on the angle dies into the wood part of the post. But the handrail up on the landing lands in those two white painted areas. That's my drawing mistake. I drew it wrong and the guys build it in the shop and Garvin came in to check and he goes, you drew this wrong. And the shop owner got pissed off because we were in a rush. And so he didn't want to change it. And so it was left. And so when John went to design it again, you know, the set designer sent me the drawings and he goes, well, I corrected that. I said, you can't correct it. <laughs> I said, it was my screw up, but it should be there. You know what I mean? It had to look like the real thing from before. So there's all those, you know, cause we do this stuff fast. When we did the pilot, we met on like a Thursday and Garvin said to me, he goes, I'm going to see Matt and he's going to give me some information. And then Garvin was going to New York on, on Sunday to do cause because he was doing back and forth. So Garvin walks in on Friday afternoon and hands me this giant stack of pictures and a couple of scribbles and goes, here, he goes, I'll be back on Wednesday night because <laughs> we have to show models to Tom and Marcy like Thursday afternoon. And it was the master bedroom. It was the house and it was the plastics factory. So there were those sets. And so we literally cranked that thing. I cranked that thing out in like two or three days. So when I made a drawing mistake, I was like, Oh, well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I have some questions about that. So you designed this set, right? And Garvin was just brilliant. Uh, you know, my experience with him is he, you know, subtle things like being able to see and the angles that we have from the kitchen to the living room, but also from the kitchen into the utility room. Right. It makes it such a, yeah, such a useful space that was ahead of its time, really. Right. Well, when we put the jealousy windows between the, you know, when we were talking, Brilliant. we put the jealousy windows in because then, because the mudroom really was an addition to the house. Right. I mean? And so we put the jealousy windows in because we knew you'd be able to talk back and forth between them. It was like that scene that we did when she was imitating Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And it worked so well, but in most times people would say, well, we have to see their faces pure and clean. We have to see their voices clean. Right. But we never worried about that because it was real. It looked like something that somebody would do in the middle in the Midwest somewhere, <laughs> and they would build that goofy mud porch because the wife was complaining because she didn't have a washer and dryer under the roof, kind of a thing. So that's where you know that's where it came from. Touching on Wellman Plastics, the beginning of this show, Wellman Plastics is such a it's a unique thing in television history. But there were limitations on space when you guys built that originally. So to make this three-dimensional, believable factory that kind of 
supports this town in a lot of ways. But to make all of that work, maybe take us through some of that and some of the details there. That was kind of like a work that was written a little bit, but we, you know, it expanded and it grew. You know, because remember the big scene in there was the scene in the lunchroom. Right. Right. So the lunchroom was really the focus set. And then the manager's office, I think, was to camera left, but you never really went in there. Right. And then camera right was the entry from the factory. And then you had the factory upstage. And like you said, we were on a we were in that warehouse in Culver City, so there wasn't a lot of room. And it had those metal posts. You were a little kid, but they were little posts, there were posts all over that stage. So we had to design the sets around these posts. So we get into the plastic factory and we're like, there's no other place to put the set and there's a pole. So the pole sort of like became part of what we were doing, you know, but I'll tell you a funny story about that, that I think is hilarious, right? That was pre computer computers were just starting then as a tool. You know what I mean? Nobody really had computers in the art departments then. So all of the boxes, I remember Garvin coming to me and we got like, you know, all the equipment was, was not, Easy to get, but we found the guy down in Orange County who brought that big giant press machine that was in there that weighed like three tons and it took us all kinds of shit to get it to the stage and everything. But then, you know, he's like, well, we need stacks of boxes. Well, nobody really knew what they made at that time, right? Because it was the pilot. And right. so we, do you know what Letraset is? Are you old enough to remember what Letraset is? So no. Letraset were black vinyl letters that came on plastic sheets. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've used them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I had to peel off and I had to do all those labels in Letraset. And then you could only go to Kinko's and get like baby blue, off white, yellow paper, right? That's all they had. And so I remember going to Kinko's and the day of the thing running off all those labels. They look when you watch the pilot now, the labeling looks so funny and so horrible because that's all that we had at the time. Right. So we were doing like address labels on a typewriter and putting those in the corner of the boxes. And all I remember is Spraygling because we had, a, you know, we were low budget then. We didn't have a lot of money to do that show. We just spray glue all those pieces of yellow and blue paper. And I'm trying to put them on the boxes and everybody's like, get out of the set. We got to work. I don't like the smell, you know, and I'm just standing there like an idiot going. <laughs> Right, gluing it's got to be done. <laughs> That's crooked, and I'm like, "Oh, you asshole!" <laughs> but sure, it's crooked. Everybody's yelling at me, "Get out of the way!" But that was that was one of the funniest things about what well, my favorite scene in that episode is when she's eating the donuts, talking about men. You take this piece off, and that's you know, that's all the macho stuff the world told them, and <laughs> the stuff remember, mom. And the funniest part I remember because I bought those were days like. Art directors did a lot more in those days. Now there's more people in an art department. Right. But in those days, when I was doing it, it was like, you know, you were like a one-man band, sort of, pulling all this stuff together. And I remember getting a couple dozen donuts in the beginning, just having them there so that they would have something to rehearse with. And Garvin was looking at me, and I said, I bought, you know, two dozen. And he goes, well, you didn't need to do that. You needed to buy, like, you know, four or something like that. So then she starts doing the scenes, and every single take, in every rehearsal, she <laughs> He was eating them. And yeah. I was sitting there watching going, God, man, she just ate like a half a dozen donuts in like an hour. I, you and I'd be throwing up and Roseanne just sitting there going, well, it's a guy like this. And she's yeah. like, I like this. And she cracks them off and shoves them in her mouth. 
That was the, one of the funniest things I'd ever seen in my life. She was hilarious. Describing what you do, right? What is the best part of your job? It's the interpretation. It's like you give me a script or you give me an idea and let me run with it. The writers don't have to be super specific. And Bruce now with me is pretty trusting. And so I can go to Bruce and I can pitch something kind of out, out there a little bit. And sometimes it's a little, you know, he's a very smart guy and he's a little, you know, he gets very cerebral about things. But then when you have a chance to talk to him and kind of explain what you're doing and whatnot, I think it's fun. Like the tattoo parlor that we did this year, the rock and roll bar that we did, you know, Which, where he sang. So it's such a neat set. And having all of the people from the crew and, and people who work on the show sign the wall. <laughs> it's right with all the bands. Yeah. And it's just a subtle thing, right? But it, it it's a galvanizing thing on top of everything else. And people can say, hey, that's my signature, or that's my moment, or right? Well, and Michael Parent, you know, our painter is a guitar player. Yes. So I wanted Michael to be able to turn around and do some square, you know, do some squares. Because I had worked in enough clubs. I used to be, a before I became a designer, I was a, a lighting guy and a roadie kind of a guy. So I had been in clubs like that before and whatnot in Pennsylvania. And so... They just had to sign the wall. I mean, every band through every band that came through with some shitty rock and roll band or other had to put their signature in the place, you know? Right. So I wanted it to have that kind of earthiness. I think that I do real well with the show is it's really consistent. You know, Anne does a beautiful job in that we keep it real. We don't we don't venture out of the Connors world. To stay true to the city and the character and the family. It's just got to be, everybody has to look at those sets and don't even care about them. They just yep. have to know that that's a bar where Dan would go get drunk. Right? I'm still waiting to see DJ's house because I'm not sure what that would be between <laughs> between him and Gina. And, and like, I, I can't wait to see at some point if you get to do that. I'd be fascinated to see what kind of mix that is. Uh, me too. You know, it's a, it's a fun process because you've got a daughter who's very outspoken. Right. You know, so she's got a, it's not like when we did the Rose, the, the Connors house, it was Dan, you know, it was her and Dan. Right. You guys wouldn't have had to say anything about it. You know what right. I mean? It's like, there's your bed, lie down, shut up. <laughs> Be happy you have a bed kind of a thing. One part about your house and, you know, you'd have your wife fall over that house. Right. And she's, you know, got her whole military thing. And religious, organized, and he clearly is not. <laughs> no, right? So, in fact, it was so funny. It's interesting because it's the first time when we got to do the vending machine office, the first, yes. right? That's the first time we've really seen you in any kind of an element. Right. I actually thought that maybe we were going to run with that storyline a little bit. I thought might, that might be a fun thing to see you doing to earn a living. Kind Me of too. Thing. But who knows? We'll see. I'm sure. I'm sure Bruce and the boys are coming up with all kinds of good stuff for the next season. What's the hardest part of your job? Logistics and time. Yeah. You know, it's like you don't. Sometimes you don't get any time to design stuff. You get a sentence and you get a day or so. Because right. what people don't really realize is how many days it takes to build them, and put them together, and paint them, and get them decorated, and everything else. So a lot of times, you know, you design fast. You know, and you have to really kind of lock and load is that's what I tell people. It's kind of like I, you know, Bruce will tell me something and I'll just sort of, you know, or John will come in and mention that we got to do something. 
And I kind of really have to, it's kind of like having a thousand flashcards flash by you and you kind of go boop, 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 bang. And then you have to go. Right. And a lot of times people afterwards will go, well, you could have done this and that. You go, yeah, you know what? I had two hours. So put yourself in my shoes when it comes to the conception of this thing. And like you said, you know, it's time, it's money, it's space, you know, and you're responsible for all those kind of things. And so there's sometimes that you design stuff and you look at it and you go, God, I wish I could have, I wish I would have been able to. A lot of times you just can't. You have to trust your instincts. You have to know your product and know the project and go here. Here's my best shot at it. Let's go. Well, and sometimes the usage change, you can have this idea of what it's going to be, but then the lines change and the usage of the space changes. And you think to yourself, if I had known now how you were going to use that, I would have done this and this to make it easier or to to really highlight those things. Right. And then that's when you just sort of can't do a thing. You make the best of it. You go, okay, they want to rearrange it or they want to block it or something different or whatever. And, you know, that's the other part of my job, though, is that's my job is by the end is to have it right for what the producers and the directors and the cast needs. And you have to adapt in two hours in the morning from four to six in the morning because companies coming in and you go, you can't work all night all the time. And so a lot of times what people don't see is how fast that you do things on stage to turn things around, you know? Oh, I was struck. You know, our first season at Warner Brothers, we were on a smaller stage, partially because a lot of the like dressing rooms and things like that were built into the stage as opposed to being outside. So they ate up space that normally would have been yours to work with. We were turning over sets so rapidly. Almost every week we were shooting something Thursday and building overnight and painting and then creating a brand new set or a brand new space for the next day. Right. And our crew was brilliant. I mean, just flat out brilliant week in, week out. I don't think I've ever seen people turn over as many sets over the course of a season and as rapidly. You guys did this tremendous job of designing, making, being functional, efficient, and then making it happen. Well, and that's where, you know, my great construction coordinator, Dan Puccio, comes in because, you know, it's like you can figure out a little bit of it, but that's not primarily what you do. I mean, when we were doing anger management, you know, we were doing that Charlie Sheen thing and doing two episodes a week. Well, we had uh, two complete stages for that show. And we were doing Bruce Wright's big. Right. So we were doing sometimes we were, we'd have 15 to 25 sets going at once. I needed to, you know, I mean, we all needed to get in that mode. So by the time we got to stage five at Warner Brothers, we were all kind of like, eh, it's only two it's not five. Right. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not quite so bad. And other people would look at you and think that you're nuts and you go, well, you know what? It's just what we do. You know, right. and that's our job. And that's our job is to make it seamless and make it easy for you guys. You know, you're the most important things on the show, right? You're the stars of the show. You're what makes it go without you. There's no show. There's nothing for us to work on. Well, and it goes hand in hand because the spaces, the places, all these things have to come together. I, you know, I'm such a fan of how production, everybody has their role that helps make something great possible. In order for us to do an amazing show, we need amazing people to pr- present an amazing environment. And then we got to deliver. And that's the one thing on the actor side is, you know, we got to make sure we deliver and we deliver by we get good lines and that helps. And then we try to heighten them and we're given a better world to play in and every side kind of 
lifts each other up. Doing set turnarounds, right? Is that we know that we have to give them to you. Right. We have to give them to the lighting. You know what I mean? We have to, our work has to be so efficient and we have to get the hell out of the way. And we, but we need to be finished, finished before we get out of the way. So we kind of got that down as far as how fast and how, you know, and you know how to design certain things and go, okay, we can turn this around. I came to town when the, um, when the Olympics, when the LA Olympics were here. I went to graduate school in San Diego. I went to have my master's in set and lighting design from San Diego in theater. Okay. And I came up to Hollywood out of that world and jumped into television. And it's a different world. You know, it, it's interesting. The way you do it is different for plays and things like that. But getting into the business is also its own kind of adventure is trying to find your path in. Totally. I got, I had one guy that I had met in the theater, a guy named Bernie Vizca, who's a very successful sitcom designer as well. And he was working at a theater company up in Santa Maria that summer of 84. And that's where I met him. So we were talking and I had some opportunity to do some theater work um, at the Actors Theater of Louisville, at the arena stage in Washington, DC, I had gotten some job offers. And so I talked to Bernie and Bernie was decorating Days of Our Lives, the soap opera at the time. Okay. And so I talked to the people in Louisville and they were like, oh, you know what, we'll pay you $500 a week. And you can live in a house with eight other people because that's all you'll be able to afford in Louisville. And Bernie said, you know what, I make a couple thousand a week decorating sets in Hollywood. He said, I think you're pretty talented. He said, why don't you come down and I'll give you some phone numbers. Awesome. So I came down and he was kind enough and he gave me some great advice. He said, everybody that you meet, ask them for a couple of names of people to call. And those were the days before emailing or any of that kind of stuff. I think I went, Michael, between August of 84 and January 85, I'll bet you I went on 75 interviews. I was on the phone. I was the biggest pain in the ass in the world. I called everybody. And if you wouldn't call me back, I'd call you again and I'd call you again. It's what it and takes. I was so tenacious, right? Because I needed, well, for one thing, I needed to eat. I was living on a buddy's couch at the time because I didn't know anybody here. So I had a friend of mine that crashed at his house. And um, so I knew, and I didn't have any money to get an apartment. So I knew I had to get busy. <laughs> so I just started calling and calling. And, you know, desperation leads to a lot of openings, right? And they go, right, right. That necessity is the mother of invention, right? Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. So then when I started, you know, I got a job in a, on General Hospital in the beginning. And then I went to Santa Barbara, the soap opera for a while. And then I did a little bit of game show work. I did some variety show work. And then I started doing sitcoms. And the thing that I like about doing sitcoms was it felt like theater pieces. It gave you a chance to do character, you know, as opposed to doing a one hour drama, the hours are a lot better on sitcoms, right? Yes. So I wanted to have some kind of a family. I wanted to, you know, have that part. I didn't want my work to be so consuming where I wouldn't be able to have a life. Yeah, people don't really realize a lot, especially one-hour dramas. I mean, you can work, especially on the crew side, around the clock, you know, because you're going from so many different locations. It takes so long. The setups are are kind of slow and really methodical. 14, 15-hour days is not 
a surprise to anybody. And, you know, you do that times nine months a year, 10 months a year, and it's very easy to turn around and have that consume your life. And it's a great opportunity if that's your passion. Right. I have some friends of mine that did 911, you know, that series on Fox. My friends are working seven days a week, 18 hours a day for months and months and months of time. The idea of going down to an alley in downtown LA and making sure that the body is traced in the right position with spray paint, eh, yeah. doesn't, sound very, doesn't sound very glamorous to me. I'll take a pass. Jerry, for you, what was the moment you knew you wanted to be in the entertainment industry? I'll tell you what pushed me in this direction that'll make you laugh, right? I was playing high school sports. I played basketball. My brothers were both basketball players, good basketball players, and I was pretty good. Okay. I got my junior year of high school, I got cut from the basketball team because I wasn't a good enough player. And I was a little lost. And I had been the time I'd been taking some art classes. And so I went into the art room and was talking to this guy. And he said that, um, I said, I'm looking for something to do to fill my time now that I'm not playing sports. And he said, well, why don't you come work? He said, you're a pretty good painter. He said, why don't you come to work on one of our theater pieces? And so we did a play called The Diary of Anne Frank. It was the first play that I ever did. And so these guys that I knew knew all about building flats and platforms and all that kind of stuff, but they needed somebody to paint the attic to make it look like an old attic, right? Right. Well, they gave me, I walked into this theater and the set for me at that time was big. And I was standing there and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I didn't have a clue, Michael. And so I got like a bunch of paints that I threw together and I painted this attic set for the Diary of Von Frank. And the night that the show opened, this guy came up to me at the end of the show. And he said to me, he said, I heard that you painted this. And I was like, well, yeah. I mean, I didn't know what the hell, where he was going. Right. Well, he was a producer at a summer stock theater company in my own town. And he said, you have talent that I don't think you know about. And so he brought me in as an intern with a theater company when I was 16 years old or something like that. And then I kind of got the bug and I knew, and all of a sudden I knew that I was talented. I knew that I was creative and I was good with my hands. I was a good carpenter. You know, I mean, I knew that kind of thing. And so I just sort of got into it and I found the camaraderie that you find on a sports team. I found in the theater. And all of a sudden I found people that I got along with and I had fun with and I enjoyed and the work was kind of, you know, it's hard work. It's down and dirty, especially doing theater, you know? Yeah. But I found a home. I found people like like-minded people like me, you know, I would go places and people would say, Oh, you're not talented enough. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm not thinking I'm listening to you. And I would just kind of go past them, you know, and go to the next one. And that's what did it. I just kept doing it more and more. And I had some good successes like in college, I was the first student ever to design a main stage play at our college. And then I went to graduate school and I was the youngest graduate student to design a main stage. So I was getting feedback, you know, some positive feedback in places. And I think that's what kept me going. And, you know, my father pretty much thought I was going to fail. And I was bound and determined. Not to. Not, you know, I wasn't going there with him. You know, I wasn't going to give him the satisfaction. <laughs> right. So that well, was part of it, right? That's how right. I, so my dad kind of was, you know, motivator and, you know, people, being around some people that I enjoyed and were friendly. And I could use my creative. A buddy of mine told me one time, he said that um, when we were doing theater, he said, you're a monumentalist. And he said, um, 
And I mean that in a nice way. Because like a painter, right? You'd paint a canvas that's, you know, 18 by 24 inches or something like that. Yeah. Not better with backdrops. Right. <laughs> feet high and 60 feet wide was more like the scale that I was comfortable with, you know? And so that's what I learned. And I learned from some great people. I met a guy in upstate New York who was a theater designer, but here he had been working in LA for the past 20 years. And his mother was dying of cancer. And that's why he went back to the East Coast. And he took this job as a designer and he brought me in as a painter. Well, here I found out one night when we were sitting around having a beer that he was the head scenic artist on the first Godfather movie. Wow. He was Coppola's head scenic artist. And here I met him in this little town in upstate New York. And that's where, you know, and he, and he of course, opened up Pandora's box and he starts telling me and teaching me all kinds of things. And I would go back to school with the summer, in the wintertime with his knowledge. And I just kept getting better and better and better at it. And so I just kept going. Finding the right people along your path, the people who can inspire you and impart some kind of knowledge or wisdom that you don't realize. You know, you meet them a lot of times in these really mediocre or benign kind of ways, right? You meet them under strange circumstances and you're thinking, well, this is, you know, a small place or a small project or something I'm here to learn in my meantime. And you find out this was your launching pad. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I believe that whole thing. There are no accidents. No. You don't meet people by accident. You know what I mean? You meet people that you're supposed that you're intentioned to or to meet along the way, you know? And the more that we kind of fight that kind of thing, shit doesn't exactly kind of go the right way sometimes, you know? Sometimes you just have to go, you have to just trust it. Right. You have to go with it. You go, okay. You know, and when I came out here, one of the things that I realized, the work ethic on the West Coast wasn't great. So all of a sudden, I knew how to work since I was a little kid. And so I came to California and got in Hollywood. And all of a sudden, I was a hardworking young man. Right. And I know that a lot of times I probably got jobs, not because I was so talented, but somebody knew that I was hardworking and that I would figure it out or I'd do what it needed to get done, you know? So you just kind of have to follow your instincts when it gets to things like that. Well, that's how I ended up doing a lot of crew stuff. You know, that's how I ended up designing sets and I did some props and I did all these other departments because people knew I had some carpentry skills. I had some physical skills, but people knew if you called me, it would get done and that I would find a way and that I was a hard worker. And probably tenacious as hell. Yeah. You know, right. So you don't give up and somebody says you can't, you go, nah, I don't think I'm believing that. I'm not buying into that one. I'll like keep going, you know? I kind of like the challenge and, you know, and I think that's a gift is looking at it and saying, Oh, you don't think I can do that? Don't worry. I'll figure it out. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Male ego, right? It's that like, you know, determination. It's that hard head in you. My dad was a hard head and I know what I got that from right from my father, you know, and you go and that, and in some instances it's not the greatest attribute to have, but a lot of times in your work, it's like, you go. I got a long way from being opinionated and being strong about things and, you know, expressing myself. All right. What are some of your most memorable projects? Well, when I went to work on General Hospital and I told my family, my mother was a big soap opera person. So when I went to General Hospital, it was like, oh, my God, you're the greatest thing in the world, right? Right. Kind of a thing. And then I did um, a sitcom. My first sitcom I did was called What's Happening Now? Okay. What's happening with Rerun and Shirley and everybody? Yep. Well, Columbia at the time was doing the cable version of that. It was one of the first cable sitcoms. 
And so I got to do that. And so we had to recreate the diner. And the first time that I met Shirley and I met Rerun and Raj and all those people, I was like 24. And that was pretty cool because I like was meeting these like Hollywood people at that point, you know? Right. So that was pretty memorable, I think for sure. And then I got, you know, I've been blessed. I got to work on, you know, the Golden Girls for a while, for a couple of years. And I got to work on Blossom with Maya Bialik when she was new. I think the most fun design thing I did in my early career is I did, um, when the writer's strike came around in 88, I think it was. Yep. Right. I ended up going on the variety show circuit and a buddy of mine, in fact, it was John Schaffner's partner, Joe, who was doing the Miss Universe pageants and they were going to Taiwan to do Miss Universe in summer of 88. And Joe decided at the last minute he didn't want to go. And so the designer took me to, ta to Taiwan. The beauty pageant circuit used to be great sets. They, yeah. we, we did really majestic, really yeah. detail oriented. Right. Um, the production value was part of the pageantry, I would say. You know, we did a pyramid on the stage that actors could climb around that could wrap up under the pyramid. And the pyramid was covered in gold leaf wow. because we did it in Taiwan and money didn't mean anything there. But we did things like that. You know, we did a plexiglass bridge that these girls would come up over and walk. And so we did some expressive things in that that, you know, you just don't do anymore, unfortunately. People right. don't do scenery. It's all about screens and things like that now. But um, that was one of the highlights for sure. I was working for Garvin. He had had a girl who was doing the Cosby show in New York, and she quit just before the season began. And I got called into his office one day, and he said, um, you want to go to New York? And I said, you know, a couple months from now, sure, what do you want to do? And he goes, no, how about tomorrow? And I had to go to New York and I had to take over the Cosby show right from the get-go of the last season. And so I'd never designed my own show before. I was petrified. Here I had to go across the country and deal with that, you know, with the number one television show in the country at the time, right? On a and, day's notice, because that's how our day, business works. <laughs> and on a day's notice, and all of a sudden, I got to find an apartment, I got to get settled, I got to set up an office, and I got, you know, on and on and on. And then I've done, you know, I had a good run. I did several years at the Disney Channel. That's So Raven, which was a big hit on the Disney Channel. Yep. And I did um, the Sweet Life series. We did 150 episodes of the Sweet Life show with the Sprouse twins. Yep. And actually, Tisdale and What's Come, Brenda Song. And then I did Hannah Montana. So I had, a, you know, I had a, did 100 episodes of Hannah Montana. And then I got to do, you know, I just finished doing um, Fuller House for five years. So the guys who had done, the woman who had done Fuller, Full House in the beginning, took it over from a, a friend of mine, actually, was my mentor that designed the original Full House show. And so then I got an opportunity. The guys called me and they brought me in and hired me on Fuller House. So I got to create, you know, this iconic, recreate this iconic show for television. So you get like bits of history in there too, you know? It was yeah. a great honor. It was a hard show to do, but it was a great honor. It was fun to, you know, recreate. And then like things like the Connors comes aboard. You know, I was willing to work as an assistant because I felt like, remember when you did a Cotton when Roseanne in the beginning, they want to do Roseanne non-union. You remember that? Yep, I do. So I got... They wanted me to do the show, but the woman who was running the company at that time told me in order to do the show, I had to give up my union card. Mm. Well, I wouldn't, you know, I just got it like two years before. No, and it's, it's hard. People don't understand from the outside is you could spend a long time trying to get in the union. Right. 
So I had a card and here she said to me, well, the only way you can do Roseanne is to give up your card. And I said, no, I'm not, why? you know, I was giving up health insurance. I was giving up benefits. Well then, you know, by not getting the Connors, not getting Roseanne, I started doing my own projects like a year or so later. So everything works out the way it's supposed to work out, you know? At the time, you don't really understand it. You're kind of right. going, and that's why it's fun coming back to it a little bit. Right. Kind of finishing some thoughts, and I'm getting to, like, kind of express myself in that world that I didn't get a chance to the first time around. Now, what's one of the strangest requests you've gotten? So when I was doing That's So Raven on the Disney Channel, the guys came to me, and they said, um, we want to do a museum interior. And I said, okay. And... They said, um, we want to do a gastro exhibit. And I looked just like you're looking. I was like, okay, you know, keep coming, keep coming. Right. Well, they wanted a giant stomach, the exterior of your large intestine. And the joke was, is that Raven Simone had to walk up to the side of it and open up a little door. It was as if she could see inside the stomach to see how it worked. But then in the magic of her show, she fell into it. I had to design the inside of a stomach for a full-scale actress to be inside of. And I stood there and I looked at these guys. So I spent a lot of money on the museum and, it, and we had the outside of the stomach, a big carving project. So it was just logistic. We found a good artist to do it and whatnot. But then when it became the, the interior of the stomach, I was like, what do I do? You know, how do you pull that off? I was flushing around trying to, and I had to do it on a weekend. Of course, we only have like two and a half days to do the thing. So I was looking around trying to figure out, okay, so if I could find a bounce house that maybe could look like the end that she could bounce around on, right? And if I'd had some walls, then I knew that at least I could start somewhere. So I found a giant spider bounce with all the big legs that come down from the spider. Okay. And I had to get some upholstery guys in there and we had to get um, volleyball nets and we had to fill the spaces between the legs that were inflatable. And then we had to turn around and then I had to put different kinds of foam in it to make it look like the veins on the inside of the stomach. And then I put some twinkle lights inside of it so that you could light it. So it would like look like something. Right. And then we covered it all in pink chiffon and we made a stomach interior out of a bounce house. See the beauty of, of getting to do this and listening to this because you start out with an idea that seems so foreign. It seems almost laughably crazy, right? I was terrified. Yeah, and then you start taking it apart, and breaking it down and saying, how am I gonna make this happen? Because the thing that people don't understand, we don't have the option to say no, right? Absolutely, right? Right. They'll find somebody else. You go, oh, I don't wanna do this, okay, great. Well, and sometimes, you get lucky that somebody else had done it. You know what I mean? So you can look at it and they say, oh, somebody did that on this show. And so you can find that gag or you can find that thing. When it came to the stomach, I was like, <laughs> and I'm calling some of my friends going, hey man, did you ever do a stomach? And they're like going, no, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the other one. People are always like, uh, no, but good luck to you because I'm glad it's not my project. Right? <laughs> Let me know how it works out. You know, you go, oh, thanks. <laughs> well. And then you get the call sometime later when somebody else will call you and be like, so I hear you did a stomach one time. Right. Exactly. And like, then yeah, no problem. You know what I mean? I was happy to share after that. 
But yeah. that was one of those moments where I'm sure that my jaw hit the table <laughs> in the writer's room when they say, oh, can you do a stomach interior? And of course, as an actor, you know this, right? There's nothing that you can't do. You're always like, yes, I can. You really can if you're committed to it and willing to go all out, right? And that really is the secret. Absolutely. Got to be full in. Partial in doesn't work. No, never. And it looks that way. And you right. can see people, you know? When I was doing this thing, like people kept coming in through the weekend, looking at the phases of this thing. And I got a producer, line producer who walked in. She goes, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And then you start to stand there and you have to stick to your guns and you can't waver. I said, I'm not going away. Well, what if you do this and this and this? I said, no, I'm going down this path. This right. is the way I'm doing it. You know, and you have to stick to your guns and cross your fingers at the same time and go, okay, this is my best shot. <laughs> yeah. Lee, it's a shot that everybody's happy with, you know? But yeah, that was probably the most unique thing I've ever was the interior of a stomach for a kid show. Okay, I ask everybody, what's the first thing you look at on a call sheet? The fact when they're shooting special effects. Because a lot of times on special effects, we have to stay. And I hate staying late. <laughs> so, of course, you'll shoot like all day. You'll be shooting, you know, the scene sitting at a desk. But then you do the house falling down at 11 o'clock at night. When there's no time left and everybody's in a rush and people are tired and there's not a lot of time to get options if something doesn't go right. And everybody's expectations are off the charts. And you've been there. You know, I start my days between 530 and 6 in the morning most days. Right. So when you're working till 11 o'clock at night, all of a sudden you're going, man, I'm like on an hour 19. I just want you to pull the trigger and blow the house up at that point. That's probably my least favorite thing are late night shoots that I have to go to. Well, I was going to ask you, what's the last thing you want to see on a call sheet? A late call? Yeah, it's when I have to be there into late in the night. You know, and like you said, you get one shot. Everybody's nervous. Everybody's impatient. And everybody wants it to be perfect. And you're standing there going, you asked me to blow up a house. Can I tell you that it's going to be perfect? No. I can tell you we did every single thing that we could find that you could afford with all the people. We have all the talent on and on and on and on and on. And you know what? All these guys got their fingers crossed. Because when that detonator goes off, <laughs> hope the ship falls apart and blows up the way we want it and the way that you want it to, too. But we don't know. Well, and you're always doing this, like you're watching whoever the big decision maker is, whoever that is in that room, you're always watching them like, right. And then if, if they smile or they get excited, it's all good. <laughs> if they, if they, if they go to their chin, that's usually to me, that's usually the sign like, oh no. Well, and you know, Bruce, Bruce is the most, um, he's the best poker face in the world, right? Yes. So you don't ever get any big reaction out of Bruce. And if you see that little smirk on his face, yes. you're like, touchdown. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll leave and, it right now. <laughs> right. Well, and you go, you go, okay, we're good, right? Like, what do you love to see at craft service? Oh, apple fritters. Oh, okay. They're crack. I mean, that is the, I like to turn around and, you know, people go, oh, they had pizza, they had, you know, steak, they had this and that because I never eat them, right? It's like one of those things that you can eat about that much of an apple fritter, and that's like enough for like a week sure of the sugar. Right. But uh, apple fritters, I, and when I first came to town, right, it's like you did, you walk on stage and they're like, well, here's all this food. And you're like, 
okay. And I'm in my 20s going, huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now what do you hate to see at craft service? Oh, probably healthy, really healthy things like Brussels sprouts, things like that, that I really don't, you know, not like really into. Yeah. And you know you should eat them, but you really like, <laughs> don't want to eat them, you know, kind of thing. Oh, I, always find I, remember myself. What, I remember, Michael, what it was. It was locks. Oh, Ooh. yeah, that's not my thing. No, man, and it looks like, it's like, Ooh. like, and I love sushi, but I walk in the morning and I see a plate full of locks with like, I'm like, ooh, no. <laughs> Okay, how do you define success, Jerry? I want people to to accept what I do for sets. Like sometimes Bruce will walk on stage and he doesn't say a word. And I know if he doesn't say a word, that it was right. I find that very successful. So we did the last episode of Fuller House. We did a triple wedding. It was the final, final episode after five seasons. And they had to do a wedding in the, they wanted to do a triple wedding and the wedding was taking place in the backyard of the house. And I always laugh because the house, the backyard on Fuller House goes from 10 feet wide to about 80 feet wide, depending on the episode. So I did this giant backyard, but I pitched this whole idea of doing a very casual, elegant wedding. And I was sitting there and I was talking to the producer and I said, it was, you know, it's the last episode after 15 years of this iconic series. And it was all the girls getting married at the same time. And I wanted to create something that was memorable. Yeah. We're like going, oh, it's just a wedding. Just do it like this, do it like that. And I said, I said, this is TV history, man. Mm -hmm. I go, this is television history. These people have fans that have been watching these shows for 15 years. And I wanted that episode to be the most memorable, beautiful wedding I'd ever done. Okay. I, we pulled it off and it was just gorgeous to look at if I do say so myself. So that kind of, you know, that kind of thing where I just know that trust your instincts, try a different point. Like the wedding, when you look at the episode, you'll go, well, this isn't like anything I've seen on TV. And that's exactly what I wanted. That was my aim. Well, I asked people, how are you measuring up to your definition of success? But sounds like, well, I get to watch so many of the sets that come in and out of our place. And of course it looks like that, right? Like you feel like you've been there before or you feel like, of course it fits. I grew up on the East coast. We had winters for seven months a year. I was a television kid growing up, you know? And if you had in the town I grew up in had like 10,000 people when I was a little boy. So if you had told that little kid that he'd end up in Hollywood working for, you know, shows that I've worked on and projects and, spending money and things like that, like I've done, I would have thought you were crazy. You know what I mean? I never would have expected that out of myself. So I think that my success in that regard is beyond anything I could have ever imagined as a young boy. I didn't have aspirations to come to Hollywood. I didn't come here to get Oscars or Emmys or any of that kind of shit. I came here to be a good set designer, basically, you know? Yeah. So in that respect, I think I've done pretty well so far. And there's some more stuff to be done for sure. What's the dream project? Are you a gamer? Yeah. Go to, when we get offline, go to okay. jerrysworld.info. I've designed and we're in process doing our first fundraising for it probably this fall. America's next great family entertainment center for gamers. And we want to build them all around the country and all around the world. And we'll build the first location in LA in the summer of 2021, grand opening jerrysworld.info check it out if you're a gamer 
yeah. you'll like flip out when you okay. see it. That's my next phase. Okay. My next phase is in the next three years to get Jerry's World up and running. And then what I want to do is I want to take that money out of that thing and I'm going to probably step away from the design world and I want to create a nonprofit to build and redo orphanages around third world country orphanages around the world. Oh, Jerry, you are uh, speaking my language. So when you're, particularly that, when you're doing orphanages in third world countries and you need somebody or you need somebody to help brighten the place or help build, there could not be a more heartfelt and needed gesture in this world. Right. Little kids who have no, who have nothing, need a great place to live. They need a great place to learn. And I think that I'll be able to turn around with the profits out of a Jerry's world. I'll be able to make that happen. Do a little bit of designing, redesigning into it, but more than anything, make them super habitable, healthy, clean spaces where the kids can have fun and where they can grow up in a more normal situation to become good human beings down the road. I feel like little children in third world countries don't have that possibility at all. And I want to give them that opportunity. And that's what I want to do. Yeah. Hope is a beautiful thing, right? Yeah. In, totally. in, the, in the darkest moments, it can keep you going and propel you to places you've never considered that you could go. What's the one thing you want to see on a set, on every set? Probably a good craft service person, right? Yeah. Good, somebody who's pleasant, who serves good food. Yeah, because I would say person. food sets a tone, right? Totally. And it makes you feel welcome. You know what I mean? When like the guys on the Connors, you know, they're great guys and they turn around and you, you know, you, you feel, and Barbara does a beautiful job with them right. and you feel like you're appreciated that way. But if you create that atmosphere, because that's pretty much where everybody comes together, right? Right. But you see each other like in a craft service area and that's the common denominator for all of us. Right. Whether you're Jack Nicholson, whether you're, you know, the 50th extra sitting in the football stands that's where everybody come, comes to square one. All right. What's the one thing you wish you could eliminate from a set? Budgets and time restrictions. It's a crazy oppressive thing at times, right? Because how we don't have time and the budget is always short to begin with. And then it gets smaller on you in a hurry. In relative terms, we have a lot of money to spend. You know what I mean? In the world outside of Hollywood, we have plenty of money to spend to do what we want to do. You know, a really high-end, amazing house. You'd rather somebody, you know, you'd rather somebody just say one time, just say to me, I don't care what it costs. Just make it right. Just make it right. When your money's an issue, you're always kind of working backwards, right? You go, okay, well, I love that carpet and I love those countertops or I like those chairs or I like this and I like that and I want them all. And then you run the numbers and you're like, okay, well, I guess I'm not getting the floor that I want. <laughs> right. I can get two of the things, right? <laughs> totally, right? Pick one from column A and one from column B, and then you're kind of stuck with it. Yes. Yeah. So it'd be nice if you could, if budgets were unlimited and time didn't matter. What's the best thing you've gotten from working on a project? It can be, it can be anything. I, I, I leave it open-ended. Probably the best gift that I've ever gotten is the freedom to create. Oh, that's a beautiful one. Probably. That's probably the greatest thing, right? I mean, that's why I love, you know, it's like when we were doing anger management, we were doing 15 sets a week. There's nothing like the buzz of pulling that off. And you walk on a stage and you see everybody acting in all these sets and everybody moving around and everything. And you know that a lot of it was your responsibility and your creativity. It's like 
if you could go and play all the ideal characters you wanted every week on the Connors, right? Yep. That kind of thing. You know, we're all in this for creativity. What's it like? Because I hadn't considered this before, but what's it like, Jerry, to build a world under all of these constraints, but build this beautiful world, but know that it's temporary and know that this beautiful thing you made has to be taken apart and disappear most of the time. Well, if you work in the theater, right, the theater artists talk about the cathartic process of it. So the strike of a theater set when the play is over is part of the catharsis because yeah. you started it, you've created it from birth and you get to destroy it. So having come from that world, I don't really hold on too much television stuff. You know what I mean? It's just the nature of the beast. How do you want the people you work with to remember you? That I was a really good guy, that I'm a good human being, that I like my, that I appreciate my crew and I'm grateful to them. And I, um, I give them as much credit as is possible. And I've always made it a habit. If I was treated in a way that I didn't like as an assistant or whatever, that I would never treat somebody that way. I probably say thank you to my guys probably more than the average person for sure. I'm super grateful. You know, I get to play for a living and I got all these human beings that are talented artists in every different skill level, you know, whatever they're a carpenter or a welder or a painter or whatever they do. And I get to create with these people. And I get the freedom to create within certain parameters, but I got all these artists to carry my vision. I like treating people well, and I would hope that people say that I'm a good guy and I'm easy to be creatively collaborative with. I strive to be the same. I love to value the people I work with, and I'm You are a good guy. You are a good guy. I can tell it. I watch the way that you are with people, and I know Michael, Michael Parent, you know, and all that he yeah. is through and whatnot. Yeah, you are very unique in that there's not a lot of people who are in your position who take that point of view. It's a beautiful wow. thing. That's a nice gift, Michael. Thank you. I appreciate that, and I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for making the worlds I get to play in each week and for breathing life into a set and giving me the opportunity and all of your crew and everyone who's involved. But in particular, Jerry, that I have you today, thank you for making my worlds better, literally, week in and week out. Okay. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Absolutely. I have one more big question for you. What's the legacy you want your loved ones to take from your life? that I was true to myself in what I chose to do for a living, that I didn't try to do this for anybody else. And I had a lot of people along the way tell me what I couldn't do, what I shouldn't do, what I can't do. And I just sort of kept plowing through it as I went. And be able to bring, you know, cause we have a vision, right? That most people don't, Right. you know? So to be able to give that gift to other people is a great thing. For me, it's about sharing gifts, right? It's about finding a way to make life a little easier, a little better, a little happier for the people around you and sharing the things that you're good at and then learning from the people who are good at things that I'm not. Right. And to make things prettier for people and to make things more authentic for people. Thank you so much, Jerry, for coming on, um, for sharing your wisdom. But I love it. I love your passion and your connection to everybody you work with. and. It's so wonderful to get to 
have the world that we get to play in, but it takes a special person to build that world. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate that a lot. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I can't wait to share more.